Hello, we're back. I'm Kristen Marchand, and this is the Apiango Line. We're in the middle of a show about a merry man from Mayo, that irrepressible Irishman, Thomas Patrick French. Here again is Jeff Bowman as T.P. French, reading from his infectious 1857 pamphlet, Information Intended for Settlers on the Apiango Road and Vicinity. Arrived in Quebec, emigrants must be particularly careful not to follow the advice of strangers of either sex in regard to lodgings, employment, or modes of travelling. When put on shore, they should go at once to the chief emigrant agent, A.C. Buchanan Esquire, whose office will be found close by and who will afford them every information they can possibly require. Such as a ride for this agency will come on from Quebec via the cities of Montreal and Ottawa and the following are the rates at which the journey may be accomplished. From Quebec to Montreal, by rail, first class, 10 shillings. Second class, 5 shillings. By steamer, the cabin, including tea and bed, is 10 shillings. Steerage, without meals or bed, 2 shillings 6. Streamers leave Quebec daily during the summer at 4 p.m. and reach Montreal next morning about 6 a.m. Railway trains leave twice a day and make the journey in seven hours. Should the emigrant require any information in Montreal, he will find Mr. Conlon, the government emigrant agent, ready to supply it. The journey from Montreal to Ottawa may also be made either by rail or steamboat at these prices. By mail steamer going through in one day, cabin and three meals, ten shillings. Steerage without meals, five shillings. By towing steamer, which may take two or three days, steerage is five shillings and no cabin. By rail, going through in about seven hours, first class, 20 shillings, second class, 15 shillings, emigrants, 10 shillings. From Ottawa, the journey to this agency may be made by land or partly by land and water, and as there are no public conveyances on the land route, the other is by far the best. It is nine miles from Ottawa to the village of Aylmer, and stages are continually running between these places. that carry passengers at two shillings sixpence each, and from Aylmer a steamer starts at 7 a.m. on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, and passengers by it are put on shore at the Bonnechere Point or at Farrell's Landing, two miles nearer Renfrew, at about 3 p.m., the fare being cabin with breakfast and dinner, 12 shillings 6, steerage, 7 shillings 6, and steerage without meals, 5 shillings. The distance from Farrell's Landing to the village of Renfrew is but 7 miles, and a stage will be on this road next summer, which will convey passengers for about 2 shillings 6 each. Thus, from Quebec to Renfrew, a distance of 367 miles may be travelled at a cost of 18 shillings sterling. At Renfrew, the emigrant is within 16 miles of this Mount St. Patrick agency, and he will have no difficulty in procuring a mode of conveyance to take him here, and hence along the Opiongo Road, should he be unable or unwilling to walk. The first of the free lots is 20 miles from the Ottawa River, and as the entire length of the Opiongo Road is 99 miles, it thus leaves 79 miles upon which free grants are being given. 
This road commences at Pharaoh's Landing on the Ottawa, crosses the Bonacher at Renfrew, and then taking a northwesterly course, it runs midway between the Bonacher and Madawaska rivers onto Lake Opiongo. It is intended to connect this with a projected line of road known as Bell's Line, leading to the Lake Muskoka and Lake Huron by a branch which will diverge from the Opiongo Road in the township of Brudenell at a distance of about 53 miles from the River Ottawa, forming with Bell's Line, a great leading road or baseline from the Ottawa to Lake Muskoka. 171 miles in length and passing through the heart of the Ottawa and Huron territory and opening up for settlement a vast extent of rich and valuable land. The Bonacher and Madawaska rivers, between which the Opiongo Road runs, are important tributaries to the Ottawa and contribute a large quota of the very best timber that annually passes down that river to the Quebec market. Over 40 miles of Opiongo Road are now good for wagons, and as the remaining portion will be repaired next spring, settlers can easily take in their families and supplies at all periods of the year. For some years past, settlers have been occasionally locating themselves on the wild lands of the Crown, in the neighbourhood of this road and as there are besides over 120 of the free lots at present conceded, those who come in future will experience no difficulty in obtaining prompt and gratuitous assistance to erect their shanties, and temporary accommodation while they are being put up. Twelve men can build a good shanty in a day, and the timber of which it is constructed being always to be had on the spot. The best possible feeling prevails among the settlers, and no kindness that any one of them can render is ever denied to the stranger, no matter from what country he hails or at what altar he kneels. Settlers are permitted to select their own lots, those coming first having first choice. The lots are all posted and numbered, and as yet the nearest villages to the road are Renfrew, Douglas, and Eganville. Renfrew is distant 13 miles from the first free lot on the east end, and some 13 miles farther up, that is 26 miles west of Renfrew, Douglas is within 12 miles. And again, 14 miles further west, Eganville is but 16 miles from the road. At each of these villages, there is a post office and also mills and stores where all necessary supplies can be obtained. At Renfrew, there is a Catholic church, a kirk, and a free Presbyterian church in each of which there is service once a fortnight. In Douglas, a Methodist minister resides, and he has prayers there and at Eganville each alternate Sunday. There is also a Catholic church two miles from Douglas and another at Eganville. In the former, the clergyman officiates once a month, and at the latter, twice a month during the summer and once a month during the winter. At Mount St. Patrick, three miles from the east end of the road, there is also a post office and a Catholic church. A clergyman attends once a month. The free lots on the east end of the road for 12 miles lie within the recently organized township of Grattan, which is already pretty well settled. No schools have as yet been established on the road, but there is no doubt that before long churches will be erected and school sections defined, and the settlers will be enabled to adore the Lord in his own temple and to secure for their children the many great blessings resulting from a good education. 
In this province, the voluntary system obtains in regard to all churches, but the schools are liberally aided by the government. Liberty, in the most extended sense of that soul-stirring word, prevails in Canada. We have here a happy and harmonious blending of the best parts of the monarch and republican forms of government, and all who know aught of our institutions and laws must admit that the constitution under which it is the proud privilege of Canadians to live will contrast favorably with that of any other country in the world. The province is divided into counties, and these are again subdivided into townships of about ten square miles. The ratepayers in each well-settled township elect annually from amongst themselves five councillors who form a body corporate and are empowered to impose taxes, levy fines, define school sections, point pathmasters, pound keepers, road surveyors, etc., and make all such bylaws as may seem to them for the benefit of the municipality. The chairmen, or reeves of these townships, are magistrates during their year of office, and meeting at stated periods in the county town, they form what is called the county council. The functions of this body consisting in a general supervision of such municipal matters as affect the county generally. When a school section is defined by township council, the clerk of such council directs some person within the section to call a meeting of the householders for the purpose of organizing a school. This meeting must be called by public notice, and at it three trustees are elected who appoint a teacher and control all the affairs of the school. If, however, any of their acts should be at variance with the wishes of the majority of the householders, the latter can protest against them, and if necessary, the matter in dispute must then be referred to the arbitration of two persons, one of whom shall be appointed by the people and the other by the trustees. And should these arbitrators still disagree, then the local superintendent is called upon to act as umpire and his decision is binding. This local superintendent is appointed annually by the county council and upon the recommendation of the reeve of the municipality wherein the school section is situated. His duties are to visit the school periodically and ascertain how it is conducted and what progress is being made by the pupils. There are three new townships now being surveyed along the Opiongo Road, and the surveyors state that the lands are excellent for agricultural purposes. When the surveys are completed, the lands will be sold by the Crown in lots of 100 or 200 acres at a price yet to be fixed, but which will not exceed some four or five shillings per acre. Such lands are usually sold subject to the obligations of actual residents, and the cultivation of a few acres annually, and the payments for them are generally made in four annual installments. Settlers are never prevented from making farms on the wild lands of the Crown wherever they find them best adapted to their wants, and all who may have gone to live on them previous to their being sold will be permitted a preemptive right to purchase. In the newer townships, the taxes rarely exceed a very few pence in the pound upon the assessed value, which is never exorbitant, but all who are on the assessment roll are compelled to do some days of statute labor annually upon the roads, the amount being regulated by the assessed value of the property. The soil in this part of the province is a sandy loam, in some places light, but in others rich and deep. 
The country presents rather a hilly aspect, but by far the larger portion is composed of gently undulating and flat lands. Few of the very highest hills are incapable of cultivation, and it is strange that the best soil is not unfrequently found on their summits. A good deal of rock and loose surface stone is also to be met with, and while it must not be denied that such often prove a source of much annoyance to the farmer, yet they do not prevent the proper cultivation of the land, nor form any great obstacles to the raising of excellent crops. All kinds of cereals, vegetables, and fruits grow well, and by the man who is capable of doing his own farming, they can be produced at comparatively little cost, and to him they are sure to yield a profitable return for his labor. But, as in all new countries, labor is scarce and consequently expensive, and he who is incapable of taking the axe, the plow, the scythe and sickle in his own hand and using them effectively cannot hope to realize much profit from pursuits exclusively agricultural. There are many avocations, however, to which a man with a small capital may usefully turn, and as the dignity of labor is here fully recognized, the particular nature of his employment will in no wise affect his respectability, provided he can always be found honest in his dealings and moral in his conduct. The wages of a good working man is usually from thirty to forty pounds a year, with board and lodging, and that of servant girls from ten shillings to one pound a month, also with board. Shoemakers, tailors, blacksmiths, and carpenters are the tradesmen most useful in the newer parts of the country, and such will find ready and remunerative employment in the various towns, villages, and settlements. Masons, bricklayers, glaziers, and the like will also have no difficulty in getting immediate and constant work in the large towns and cities. In fine, there is plenty to do for all who are able and willing to do it. But for the indolent or the intemperate, there is no room, and such characters will certainly not better their circumstances by a change to Canada. The climate of Canada, being so widely different from that of the United Kingdom, the system of farming and the rotation of crops must necessarily be dissimilar in both countries. And it is most essential that the intending emigrant should accurately understand how much he has to learn, and be made familiar with every phrase of the difficulties he will have to encounter in the land of his adoption. The circumstances having reference to these difficulties may be thus concisely stated. As some may also be curious to know more particularly how the preliminary process of clearing is effected, this too will be described. It comes first in order and is thus accomplished. Before falling the large timbers, the underbrush and small trees are cut close by the ground and piled in heaps. Then the large trees are chopped within about three feet of the root, and the branches are taken off and piled on the heaps of underbrush. And the trees themselves are chopped up into logs of a size capable of being hauled from one place to another by a yoke of oxen. This completes the chopping, and if it be done in the winter, it remains thus until the spring, when the brush and branches have decayed and are readily burned off. At the burning of the brush piles, all the leaves and small sticks that lie about are also consumed, and nothing remains but the large logs. 
As soon after, as may be desirable, the logging takes place, and this is done by drawing the logs together with oxen and placing them in piles that will quickly burn. When necessary, these piles are fired and are generally consumed in a day. The ashes to which they have been reduced are carefully gathered, and from them is potash manufactured. The stumps of the trees, unless extracted by a stumping machine, will remain for about seven years, but yet the land is now considered clear and is fit for cropping. A good man can chop an acre of average land in six or seven days, and four men and a yoke of oxen is the complement allowed to log it. Potatoes and wheat are the first crops generally raised upon new land, as it is too rich for almost any others. The potatoes to be planted are, as in the old country, cut into slits. The only implement used by the planters is a small hoe, and with it they dig shallow holes in the ground, about a yard apart, and in each of them three slits are placed. The earth is then scratched up all around, and the formation of a small mound over the seed completes the planting. When the shoots appear above ground, a second hoeing takes place, but after this they remain undisturbed until they are finally taken out, and the hoe alone being still used in their extraction from the earth. The women and children of the family are most frequently the cultivators of the potato. When wheat is to be sown, it is shaken over this new land and simply dragged or harrowed in without any previous plowing or cultivation. Wheat is the crop that generally succeeds the potato, and it is sown in the potato soil as in the new land. Oats follow the wheat, but the wheat stubble must be plowed for its reception, and all crops here, though put in later in the spring than in England, mature earlier than in England. Generally speaking, the snow is off and the ground is fit for ploughing between the 20th of April and the 1st of May. Peas may be sown up to the 20th of May. The same for Indian corn. Spring spring wheat goes until the 25th, while Swedish turnips only till the 15th of May, while Aberdeen can be planted until the 10th of July, but oats may be sown up to the 1st of June. Likewise, potatoes can be planted until the 24th of June, while cabbage seed can be planted in a box about the 15th of April and transplanted to the open ground by the 1st of June. The first mowing of the hay generally commences about the 12th of July. An acre and a quarter is the average quantity of meadow that a man will cut per diem. The expense to save in the hay is considerably less than in England. It may be judged of by the fact that light meadow hay has been known to have been cut and put into the barn or stack on the same day. The more usual system, however, is to shake it out soon after being cut, then to rake it into windrows and make small stacks of it by the evening, and next evening put into the larger stacks or the barn. The reaping of the wheat that has been sown in the autumn begins about the 1st of August. If it not be lodged, it can be cradled, which means being cut with an implement called a cradle resembling a scythe, and by means of which a man will cut at least four times as much as with the reaping hook. Spring wheat comes in about the 10th of August and may also be cradled if not lodged. Oats is usually fit for cutting by the 14th of August and is most frequently cradled. Peas ripen by the 5th of August and are cut with the scythe and the reaping hook. 
Indian corn is gathered in about the 8th of September, and it takes about four men to the acre. Women and children are almost as useful at this work. Potatoes ripen according to the time at which they have been planted. By the 10th of October, the harvest is generally housed, and then underbrushing, which cannot well be done in winter in consequence of the deep snow, is commenced. Potash is now being made, and sleighs and sledges are put in order for the winter's work. Potash is very remunerative to the farmer, and requires but little skill in the manufacture. The kettle and coolers necessary cost about 14 pounds, but they are always applied on credit by the storekeepers in the neighborhood, who are paid in potash or other farm produce. The ashes of two and a half acres of ordinary hardwood land should be sufficient to make a barrel of potash, say, of the second quality, and for this the owner should receive thirty dollars or seven pounds ten shillings after deducting all expenses of carriage, storage, etc. In this section of the province, slaying can rarely be calculated on with any degree of certainty before Christmas in each year, and it ends about the 10th of April. The manufacture of maple sugar may take place before farming operations commence in the spring, and with advantage to the settler and without involving the loss of any valuable labor. Cows, horses, oxen, pigs, sheep, and poultry are to be had as cheap, if not cheaper, than in the mother country. An excellent farm cow seldom costs more than one pound, and wool may be set down as being worth about five pounds. Horses and sheep cannot well be supported unless there be some land cleared and laid down in pasture upon which they may graze. But such is not necessary for the oxen and cows, as they are merely allowed to roam at large in the bush or nearby woods, and they quickly fatten up on the brose and the herbage. In winter they are to be fed upon wild hay, which is generally easily obtainable at some of the numerous beaver meadows that are to be found in all directions, and which are now regarded as a common property until the lots are surveyed and sold by the government. All through the valley of the Ottawa, patches of pine and hardwood are singularly mingled, and it is a wise dispensation of providence that they should be so. For as the hardwood land is that which best repays the farmer's toil, so is the pine grove the mainstay of the lumberer, and each must remain dependent on the other, while yet at an inconvenient distance from railways or navigable waters. Thus, it is that the lumber shanties afford a certain and profitable market for all the settlers, surplus produce of beef, pork, flour, peas, potatoes, oats, and hay. At the neighboring villages and by new settlers, a large quantity of farm produce is also annually consumed, and all such, except the hay, will be gladly taken in exchange for shop goods by the storekeepers, so that if a man takes a few bushels of oats or potatoes or a barrel of pork or flour to the nearest village, he can always obtain for them an equivalent in groceries, dry goods, or hardware. Lakes, streams, and springs of the purest water are to be found in all directions, and to the man who understands fishing they will yield an abundance of the choicest fish. One man in the settlement of Lake Clear, which is close to the Opiongo Road, has realized as much as 20 pounds in one season by the sale of barreled fish after supplying his own family. Wild deer, partridges, and ducks are also numerous and will repay the labor of looking out and shooting them. The pelts of beaver, 
otter, mink, marten, muskrat, and fisher are very valuable, and some settlers make money by trapping these animals. Wolves and bears also inhabit the bush, but however the idea of such neighbors may scare Europeans, they are not dangerous to man. Even when unarmed and alone, they fly from him whenever he happens to cross their path, and they seldom annoy the settler unless in harvest, when the Bruin occasionally helps himself to a feed of growing grain or to a pumpkin, but for which he generally pays the penalty of his life and his skin amply compensates for the few evening meals he may have stolen. In Europe, much misconception exists with respect to the amount of capital necessary for a farm settler in Canada to be possessed of. Let it then be distinctly understood that the single man of temperate habits, with a will to work, needs but a stout heart and a strong arm to realize for himself an independence in a very few years. With the man of family, however, it is somewhat different. But it is hoped the following extract from a letter of the undersigned, in reply to one addressed to him last spring by his lordship, the Bishop of Bytown in Ottawa, will afford the necessary information and remove all further doubts on this important question. The bishop asks, What capital do you think it necessary for an industrious family, say, of five people, to be possessed of, in order to settle down on wild land in that part of the country? My answer? Your lordship has scarcely been sufficiently explicit in putting this question. You cannot fail to observe that it will make a serious difference in the bush whether the family of five be composed of males or females, or whether the children are old enough to render any assistance to their parents. I will, however, put the case myself, and suppose your lordship means the family to consist of a sober and industrious father and mother, and three young children incapable of doing any outdoor work. And as I conceive this to be a point about which there should be no possibility of error, I will give a careful estimate of the quantity and cost of the provisions calculated to support such a family for 18 months, together with a list of the articles usually in use by settlers with the prices attached, observing that I have taken this year's prices for the provisions which is rather a high average, and that the figures affixed to the other articles are such as they may be purchased in the village of Renfrew in this county. The provisions necessary for a family of five, say for one year. In the attached list, your lordship sees a variety of foodstuffs, flour, pork, potatoes, tea, herrings, salt, seed potatoes, and other seed, along with such implements as an axe, a grindstone, a shovel, hose, reaping hooks, scythe, augers, hand saws, window sashes and glazing, bake over and sundry cooking pot, pans, kettles, teapots, dishes, knives and forks, blankets, quilts, bed sheets, and a smoothing iron, and with a family pig, and the total price comes to fifty six pounds, two shilling, one pence. In a document such as this, Written for the information of those who have resolved to try their luck in a new country, the writer feels that the character of the inhabitants of the Ottawa Valley must not be overlooked or but lightly and carelessly touched upon. A strict sense of conscientious obligation will render this delineation of it entirely free from every trait of prejudice or partiality. 
as he is fully sensible of the importance that those who may be disposed to leave the land of their fathers and bid adieu forever to the fondly cherished friends of their youth should know correctly the moral standard that prevails in this county where they are about to make new homes and the probable amount of danger to the morals of their children from association with its people. The inhabitants of the Ottawa country are of various origins, but are chiefly English, Irish, Scotch, and French Canadians. Amongst them, the leading Christian denominations are well represented, and each particular creed can boast of worthy ministers and faithful followers. Generally speaking, religious or political acerbity is almost unknown here. The people of all creeds and shades of politics are so mixed up in business so dependent upon each other that they cannot afford to quarrel about their particular forms of worship or their political predilections, even though their better judgments did not interpose to prevent them. No doubt a fanatic or political traitor on occasion will be met with, but such characters receive little encouragement, and fortunately for the country their number is not increasing. Peace and goodwill between man and man may forsooth be said to be the characteristics of the Ottawa country, for although wide differences of opinion do and ever must exist, yet such unfriendly feelings as they may generate are, with but few exceptions, restrained from when becoming bounds by Christian charity, common sense, and an earnest desire for the general weal. Hospitality is a virtue freely practiced by all, and from the highest to the lowest, and the stranger, whoever or whatever he may be, is always sure of receiving kindness and encouragement, for in all probability the position in which the recipient may now be is identical with that in which the doer himself has some few years previously." The laws of the country are efficiently administered, the rights of property are respected, and every species of crime is comparatively trifling. The following paragraph from a local journal will corroborate this statement. Jail to let. The Perth jail is now and has been for some time past without a single occupant. When it's considered that Perth is the county town for the large counties of Lanark and Renfrew, this Fact speaks well for the morality of the people, and long may it be so. The comment on the foregoing would, it is hoped, be deemed superfluous, unless it is to be stated that the United Counties, so spoken of, embrace an area of about 2,500 square miles, and contain a population exceeding 40,000. It now remains but to add a few remarks on the climate of this country of which so great a horror seems to be entertained by those whose only knowledge of it consists in knowing that it is very hot in summer and very cold in winter. Tis true that the Canadian summers are hot and the winters long and cold, but still who that ever lived in this province will venture to assert that its climate is not as healthful as that of any other portion of the globe. Farming operations are usually begun about the middle of April and continue till the 1st of December, about which period the snow generally falls and remains until the end of March. The clearing of the land, however, is most frequently done in the winter, and threshing and milling are also exclusively winter employments. Besides purifying the atmosphere and enriching the earth, the frost and snow fill up mud holes. 
almost impassable in summer, and convert lakes and rivers into excellent roads over which the farmer takes large sleigh loads of produce to the mill and to the market. In the preservation of meats, the frost is also a very great advantage. It obviates the necessity of feeding fat cattle or poultry through the winter, and thus saves an incalculable amount of labor and expense. As before stated, the cattle are permitted to roam at large through the woods in summer, and in the fall, such as are intended for beef, are in fine condition. And when the cold weather sets in, they are slaughtered, and the meat being allowed to freeze, and being then put in a cold place, it keeps perfectly fresh till spring. Poultry are preserved by the same simple process, and milk may also be kept throughout the winter in frozen cakes, a lump being chopped off and thawed out as occasion may require. Were it not for the frost and snow, and the length of time they continue, lumberers could not draw their timber from the woods to the streams, neither would the latter be sufficiently deep to float it to the larger rivers, only for the increase to their waters received by the melting snow in spring. In short, however much the length and severity of our Canadian winters may frighten those unaccustomed to them, and ignorant of the many blessings which they bring, but for them the climate would be less healthful, the soil less fruitful, the variable products of the forest could never be made subservient to the use of man, and Canada would not be what she now undeniably is, a prosperous, a progressive, and a happy country." Signed, T.P. French, agent for the Ottawa and Opiongo Road, Mount St. Patrick, Canada West, February 1857. Who knew that our deep snowdrifts here in the Ottawa Valley would help produce even more abundant crops? Or that the best soil was atop rocky crags and hilltops? But that's the sort of thing T.P. French was telling prospective settlers in his immigration pamphlet. Regardless, he wasn't making enough money with his Crown Land Agency contract to make his own ends meet, so he began looking further afield. Soon after publication of his pamphlet at the beginning of 1857, he moved to Sebastopol Township and set up along Lake Clear, where he won a second British colonial contract to set up a new post office there on September 15, 1858. The place was further along the Opiongo Road than Mount St. Patrick, and pushed the Algonquin frontier even further westward. He called his new abode Clontarf, perhaps expecting that it might be the death of him, even as he hoped to achieve his greatest victory in that always losing battle for new immigrants. At first, it seemed Clontarf might be working. Immigrants were arriving by the hundreds, and for nearly four years, things moved along swimmingly. Soon enough, he became the Reeve of Sebastopol and Griffiths Townships, and by 1861, when the colonial government allowed the singular county administration of Lanark and Renfrew to be broken up into two separate counties, T.P. French became Renfrew County's first warden, a job he kept until his new Clontar farmhouse, with its post office and crown land office, caught fire late one night in 1863 and burned to the ground. Always an optimist, T.P. French saw that catastrophe as an opportunity to pursue change. And the winds of change were certainly afoot. Late in the 1850s while in Perth, the county seat for that previously united Lanark and Renfrew County, he met a fetching young woman, six years his junior. Her name was Jessie Montague McLean, the eldest daughter of Mary McLean, 
the widow of John McLean, a free Presbyterian, former ship's captain, and, prior to his death, the sheriff of Kingston. After sweeping Jessie off her feet with a few strategic years of Irish courting and sparking, T.P. French pressed his case and proposed marriage. The idea met with a most definite yes, and so on the 9th of January, 1862, in Jessie's original hometown of Cornwall, the young couple were married not once but twice, first by a Presbyterian minister and then by a Catholic priest. Some three years later, early in the winter of 1865, a son, John McLean French, was born in Kingston, followed in the autumn of 1866 by the birth of a daughter, Mary Josephine. But tragedy struck the French household again not ten months later. On July 23, 1867, Mary died in Eganville. Barely two months later and still reeling from her death, T.P. French accepted the Conservative nomination to run in South Renfrew in the first provincial election after Confederation. Late that September, he was narrowly defeated by Jane Lorne McDougall, the Liberal Reeve of Renfrew and then Warden of Renfrew County, who would go on to become one of Canada's best Auditors General. It had been more than a few tough years for Mr. French. Beginning in 1863, after his Clontarf home and office had gone up in smoke, he resigned from various contracts or lost more than one elected position. He gave up being postmaster at Clontarf, Reeve of Sebastopol and Griffith Townships, Warden of Renfrew County, Crown Land Agent for the Opiongo Road, and then early in autumn of 1867, he lost that opportunity of becoming the MPP for South Renfrew. Still, what job attracted T.P. French to Eganville in 1864, and what made him leave there for Prescott after his failed provincial electum of 1867, are not yet known. What is certain is that he continued to work as a federal government contractor and celebrated the joyous birth of a second daughter, Anna, in 1869. It was that last event that seemed to turn his life around from one of seeming Clontarfian defeat into sure victory elsewhere. By 1870, T.P. French was selected by the new Dominion government as one of only a handful of senior government officials who were charged with executing Canada's first national census. And as luck would have it, when that census was taken in 1871, we can see T.P. French living with his wife and two children in the household of his brother-in-law, John McLean, a prominent Prescott lawyer and nephew of Chief Justice McLean. Less than one year later, T.P. French moved up permanently to Ottawa, where he was then appointed to another one of those rarefied senior public service jobs at what would become Canada Post. In fact, Canada Post to this day claims that T.P. French worked for them all along, as far back as September 17, 1855, when he first set up shop at Mount St. Patrick. Why he left Clontarf and then Eganville is still up for debate, but it's assumed that once his Clontarf home and post office burned down, he quickly moved the one thing that he had saved from the fire, his government files, and took them to the O'Brien farm next door, where the Clontarf post office remained for decades. Indeed, when Father Ken O'Brien was a young boy growing up in that household, he remembers a particular room designated as federal property and off-limits to all children. French's move to Eganville was probably in the spring of 1864 when he resigned from managing that Clontarf post office as well as his main job as Crown Land agent. 
Later records show he continued to work for the post office in some capacity, other than as a local Ottawa Valley postmaster. Perhaps he moved up into regional management or mail route development, which would have been sorely needed at that time, given the rush of immigrants to the area, mostly those wanting to join the timber trade rather than prospective farmers. What is known for certain is that by September 17, 1873, T.P. French was living comfortably in Ottawa with an annual salary of $2,400 as the postal inspector for Eastern Ontario. After his 1871 census efforts had helped formulate the beginning of Statistics Canada, T.P. French's prospects had improved dramatically. He now had a high-paying public service job that had him in charge of every post office and postal service from Kingston to Cornwall, up through the nation's capital and beyond into the upper Ottawa Valley, through which he approved any number of new post offices in places such as Barry's Bay and Bulger's Corner, to say little of the personal sleuthing he often did in Pembroke and Gananoque, where mail fraud was suspected or outright mail theft was in full swing. Indeed, T.P. French soon found himself the darling of Ottawa newspapers as well as those in Kingston, Montreal and Quebec City. They all seemed to hang on his every movement in matters connected with postal affairs. Even his leisure pursuits were noted with keen interest, as when he began performing on stage in 1872 as a frequent reciter of Irish prose, or when he visited Vancouver by train, or in 1878 when he took his young son, John, to Ireland and presented the Lord Mayor of Dublin with official regards from the St. Patrick's Society of Ottawa to help Ireland celebrate the centenary of the birth of Daniel O'Connell, the Great Liberator. Ironically, one of his most notable mentions in the national press occurred when, as the seeming Hercule Poirot of the Canadian Postal Service, T.P. French himself was robbed in broad daylight, with the bandits rolling up his carpets and making off with anything that wasn't nailed down in his Ottawa home. Still, Probably the greatest single amount of press coverage and outpouring of genuine heartfelt emotion occurred when news spread like wildfire from Vancouver to Halifax on that sad, sorry day of November the 7th, 1890, when 64-year-old Thomas Patrick French was no more. He died unexpectedly after tending to his garden upon coming home from work. His funeral was national news, attended by dignitaries far and wide, including Dennis Barry, a Montreal judge, but also someone T.P. French had once hired as his assistant when they both lived at Clontarf. Indeed, Judge Barry was one of Thomas Patrick French's pallbearers, which suggests that though they had parted workplace company in 1864, they had been drawn together by the grand illusion of Clontarf and remained close friends for the next 26 years undoubtedly bonded by their profound love of Ireland and their remarkable careers in public service, careers that were both kick-started on that little old dusty road in Clontarf where no Viking has ever dared to tread. The story, of course, does not end with the death of T.P. French in 1890 or that of his dear widow Jessie less than two years later in 1892. Their unmarried daughter, Anna, went on to a stellar career in Baltimore, Maryland, where she established a name for herself at Johns Hopkins Medical Center in training nurses. But it was son John who had perhaps the most surprising career, although still very consistent with his father's sense of public service. In 1893, 
John married Eugenia O'Keefe, daughter of the famous O'Keefe Brewing family of Toronto. Initially, the couple set themselves up there and 10 months later welcomed their firstborn, a boy named Eugene. John owned a paint manufacturing company, but then a double catastrophe hit. Eugene died, not yet a year old, as did his sister when she was only 10 months old. And then John's paint fabric went up in smoke. But like his father after that horrendous 1863 Clontarf fire, John, son like father, took off for greener pastures. In John's case, he landed in New York City where he reinvented himself as a professional writer. He wrote off-Broadway plays that were mostly successful, including one which was optioned and eventually made into a silent movie. John McLean French also wrote countless freelance articles for American newspapers and national magazines, and in 1906, he published his first novel, Trail of Destiny, a Romance of the Canadian Bush, which is still in print and undoubtedly chock full of old bush stories his father told him about life along the Opiongo, and certainly replete with the sort of happy fictions his father wrote about in his 1857 pamphlet. But after his second novel, John McLean French soon discovered a new invention, radio, and by the mid-1930s, John McLean French had become an essential scriptwriter for the fledgling drama department of the new National Broadcast Service in Canada, CBC Radio. Indeed, like the 1884 news out of Ottawa that his father, T.P. French, was one of the first early adopters of some newfangled te technology called a telephone, Son John saw his professional future and the future of Canada entwined by radio wires. So John settled back into a literary life in Toronto and continued to write radio scripts and produce radio dramas that the CBC beamed into the front parlors of depression-ridden homes all across Canada, and especially into the homes of those Clontarf grandparents who T.P. French had once placed as young settlers along the Opiongo Road from his office on Lake Clear. Ultimately, John lived to the ripe old age of 75, passing away peacefully in his sleep in 1940, the last of T.P. French's male line. He was predeceased by his only surviving child, Hilary, who also had a stellar career in another branch of public service. Born in 1896 and so by 1914 of prime age to join the Great War effort, which he did happily, Hilary J. French achieved considerable merit winning with distinction a Medal of Honor for bravery along the Western Front in Europe, but sadly dying young, married but childless, by age 34. So, at the 100th anniversary of Thomas Patrick French's first arrival in Canada in 1851, nothing much remained of his family, not even a photograph of himself or his children or grandchildren as far as we know, except there are all those inspiring stories of Thomas Patrick French's short, happy life and that irrepressible energy he had to build an incorrigible myth of our little Clontarf along the Opiongo line. That was Lynn Stewart reading from an article published this past week in the Eganville Leader about Thomas Patrick French. Preceding Lynn was Jeff Bowman reading from French's famous 1857 pamphlet promoting the Opiongo Road. Indeed, that old Opiongo Road and all that it means to our local heritage and culture literally makes us who we are today. It's as if the ghost of T.P. French still walks among us 158 years after he was last seen traipsing away from Clontarf. I'm Kristen Marchand, and for Lynn Stewart, Jeff Bowman, 
our lively friends at the Eganville Leader, and our producer, Barry Conway, we wish you all the best when you go exploring, as we know you will on that old Opiango Road that still very much exists today. Good day, and God bless. Thank you.